Bibles, please turn in them to Matthew chapter 5, the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 5. If you came here today without a physical copy of the Scriptures, we do have copies uh, in the shelf just below the, the pew in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to take uh, that as our gift to you. We'll be this morning in the Gospel of Matthew. That's the first book of the New Testament. We'll be in chapter 5. The big numbers are the chapter numbers, the small numbers, or the verse numbers. I'll be this morning at Matthew 5, verses 1 through 5. Please follow along as I read. Seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Can I ask that we pray once more? Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the Bible. We thank you for your word revealed to us. Where would we be without the Scriptures? How could we ever know you apart from them? How could we have any hope of redemption without them? How could we know how to live had you not revealed yourself by your word? And so as we come before it now, we pray that you would remove distractions, and we pray, Father, please, by your Spirit, obliterate our pride and any other obstacle that keeps us from seeing and believing and embracing all that you have for us in this text this morning. We pray together in Jesus' name, amen. When you think of the most successful and powerful people in the world today, I wonder, in your opinion, what character traits distinguish them? What stands out to you about them at the level of their personality and their character? What virtues do they possess? What characteristics define them? Uh, for example, what character traits are most evident and prominent in our current president or in our last president uh, and other world leaders? Uh, what character traits mark those at the top of the leading companies? Or how about the leading uh, celebrities and artists and entertainers and athletes? If you were seeking to draw their moral portrait, what would be the traits that stand out to you. And now you may assume as I ask that series of questions, I'm expecting that every trait you would think of would be negative, but I don't necessarily mean for that to be the case. And one of the things that is a distinct blessing about living in the country in which we live is that many biblical virtues uh, are still valued and treasured in our culture and in our society. If you've lived in this country for many years, you might sort of roll your eyes at that, but it's still nonetheless true, many virtues that the Bible extols are still valued in our current climate. For example, diligence is still valued. Maybe not as much as it used to be, but we all value hard work, don't we? We want to have hardworking people uh, working on our house, for example. Uh, we want uh, hardworking students in our classes, hardworking doctors at the hospital, hardworking police officers and law enforcement. Uh, you might think of other virtues, such as honesty. Uh, we all want honest judges and juries, don't we? Uh, we want honest servicemen and women. Uh, we expect contracts to be honored, and we expect the system of rewards and penalties to cohere with that expectation. Uh, still, if you are to bear false witness in the courtroom, it's considered perjury, right? It's a crime that's penalized. Uh, similarly, many of the vices that the Bible acknowledges uh, are still acknowledged in our culture as vices. Murder in most of its forms is still illegal and it's punished. A theft and stealing in many of its forms is still penalized. But having said all that, if we were to pretend for a moment that our culture, our society, and the spirit of our age are totally aligned with the moral and ethical vision of Scripture, we would be entirely deluded. Many of God's righteous requirements have no place in wider American culture. And numerous biblical commandments are not only routinely violated and broken, they are actually seen as bigoted and antisocial 
and wrong. Many of the virtues that Jesus spoke of, for example, in this sermon, are no longer encouraged among people in our world. The Christian way is at many points at odds and in direct conflict with the spirit of the age. And friends, we have to all be prepared for this, especially those of us who are Christians. To be a Christ follower will necessarily put you in conflict with the prevailing way of thinking that regulates our world. You recognize this, right? To be a genuine Christian will require you to walk out of step at many points with the moral expectations of the wider culture. Much that the Bible will call good, the world will call evil. Much that the Bible will call evil, the world will call good. By becoming a Christian, you are committing yourself to live by a different moral compass than the one that directs this present evil age. To be a Christian is to march to the beat of a different drum. In coming to Christ, you must count this cost and embrace this calling. If you've been with us for the first two sermons in the Beatitudes, perhaps this thought has already dawned on you, that Jesus really is calling His disciples to an entirely new and different way of life. We've been in this passage for a few weeks now, and isn't it true you step into the world of the kingdom of heaven through the front door of the Beatitudes, and you sort of feel with Dorothy, you know, we're not in Kansas anymore. Uh, This is something different altogether that Jesus is giving His disciples. We come to appreciate that Christ's followers are to operate out of an entirely different moral framework than that of the world around them. They pursue different ends and goals. They possess different internal motivations for their conduct and for their lives. They do, in truth, form, as John Stott has called it, the Christian counterculture. There's just something different about these Christians. This pattern will continue this morning now as we come to verse 5 of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. And personally, I'm not sure any of these Beatitudes more directly violates the spirit of the age. And sadly, a spirit of an increasing number of professing Christians than this beatitude, which says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And we're conditioned to think, aren't we, as 21st century Americans, that if you want to go somewhere in this world, if you want to have a successful and enjoyable life, what you need to do is assert yourself. You must put yourself first. You must seize opportunity. You must stake your claim. You must express your individuality. You must make sure your interests are honored. And you must make sure your rights are protected. You must be aggressive and self-confident. You must not allow others to discount you or use you or abuse you. You must look out for yourself. You must be determined and formidable. And you must compete and you must contend. These are the people, right, who end up on top in life. But then Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And again, we just find ourselves presented with something completely different uh, than what our culture would condition us to believe. Now, as we've been doing with each of these Beatitudes, we have to define what we're talking about here and understand the ideas that lie behind the subject of meekness. I don't assume, even as I use that word, uh, meekness, that we are all on the same page about what that word means. Now, I personally think of all of these Beatitudes, what it means to be meek may be the hardest to define. Uh, In Scripture, there are a large cluster of ideas and virtues and principles that sort of orbit around the idea of meekness. The word is notoriously difficult to define. You can almost say uh, that a summary of what it means to be meek is simply to be like the Lord Jesus. You can almost say that. Uh, in fact, when Jesus describes for us His heart, He only does that once. It's in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Jesus invites those who are weary and are heavy laden to come to Him, and then He gives us a description of His heart. And how does He describe His heart in Matthew eleven twenty nine? He says, come to me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. In other words, you want to know what I am at the core of my being, what I'm like. The two words he uses are meek, or sometimes translated gentle, and the word lowly. This goes to the heart 
of who our Lord is. Well, what then is meekness? As we've done with the first two Beatitudes, let's start with what it is not. Okay, this is what meekness is not. Uh, Three ideas here. First of all, meekness is not weakness. To be meek is not to be soft or to be a pushover or to be a weakling. Uh, Moses has said in Numbers 12, verse 3, uh, to be the meekest man on the face of the earth. And just consider his biography for a minute. I, I think you'll agree with me. Moses wasn't a weak man. He wasn't soft. He wasn't a pushover. As I've noted already, Jesus is said to be meek. It's said to constitute the nature of his heart. He's meek and lowly in heart. In Matthew 21, verse 5, when Jesus uh, proceeds into Jerusalem, his triumphant procession, uh, there we have those words quoted that your king will come in meekness, riding on the colt of a donkey. As he comes as king into Jerusalem, he comes in meekness. Well, Jesus was not soft. He wasn't a pushover either. Paul will refer to himself as meek. He'll instruct Timothy, his son in the faith, as he's supposed to confront the false teachers in Ephesus and put the church in order. He instructs him to be meek in his leadership of the church. So meekness is not weakness. It's not to be soft. It's not to be a pushover. Secondly, meekness is not contrary to boldness for Christ, a courage in the face of opposition, or a commitment to standing confidently on the Word of God in the face of challenges, or a willingness to refute error as the need arises, or to engage in occasional conflict as necessary for the sake of Christ. Meekness will, of course, condition how we do these things, but meekness is not contrary to these things. Uh, it's, it's not to say that we can never be bold or take a stand. It's not to say we should be so utterly averse to conflict that when I see it coming from around the bend, I turn and come back by the way I came. A third idea then that meekness is not. It's not weakness. It's not contrary to boldness for Jesus. Number three, meekness is not the same thing as the kind of personality that is at all times nice and sweet and agreeable and acquiescent. Now, it might be a good thing if more Christians were nice and sweet and agreeable, maybe not acquiescent, but um, that's not to say if that's your personality, I'm just a very agreeable person, Uh, that that means you're necessarily meek. Uh, Furthermore, we should not think of the meek person as the one who has no opinions about anything or just always passes the plate or something like that. We're not talking about a personality type like that at all. Those are some wrong-headed ideas of what meekness is, but now let's consider positively in this message three ideas that I think go to the heart of biblical meekness. Number one, meekness requires humble submission with respect to God. Number two, meekness requires a humble and lowly attitude with respect to ourselves. And number three, meekness requires gentleness forbearance, and deference with respect to others. So we'll consider meekness with respect to God, meekness with respect to ourselves, and meekness with respect to others. First of all, meekness requires humble submission with respect to God. In the first instance, what does meekness look like in relationship to God? Simply put, meekness involves humble submission to God, His Word, and His ways. So I recognize who I am before Him as His creature, who I am before Him as a sinner who has been saved by His amazing grace, who I am before Him as His servant, who I am before Him as His child. And I respond to all of this by taking a lowly posture of humble submission to Him in meekness. In a posture of meekness, I recognize that He is God and that I am not. He is in charge and I am not. His ways are right and good, and it is for me to submit to them. His Word is authoritative and true, and I'm to receive it as such. That is how James talks about us receiving the Word in James chapter 1. He says that we ought to receive the implanted Word with meekness. What does that mean? I'm to take a submissive posture toward God as He gives me the Word, and to receive it in a spirit of humility and lowliness and meekness. The opposite of the one who is meek is the one who is out of control before God. Uh, Asaph will say in Psalm 73, I was like a brute beast before you. What's he saying? He was lashing out. He could not be controlled. 
He was questioning God, doubting God, accusing God, insisting on his own will and his own way. The opposite of the one who is meek is the one who is rebellious, who answers back to God, who who bucks under his providence and his will and his sovereignty. The one who impudently questions God and arrogantly acts out of accord with his will. But the meek man is humble before God, a docile even, ready to receive instruction and guidance, not stirring, not out of control, but subdued, receptive, humble, meek, ready to receive from the Lord whatever He gives me from His hand as right and good. When it comes to meekness, one of the most helpful pictures we get from classical Greek, from the classical Greek world, is the picture of a horse that is tamed. Uh, This word was often used with reference to horses. So you could imagine a horse that's flailing around, hasn't been broken in. You think of an untrained bronco or something like that, or something from a Western movie where the young buck is trying to ride the horse and keeps getting thrown off. And then Clint Eastwood or Kevin Cosner shows up, the skilled horseman, and is able to break in the horse's will or something like that. And this word for meekness was used of the horses whose will had been broken in, the horse that had been tamed, the horse that wasn't thrashing around and out of control, but rather had come under the influence of the skilled equestrian, the skilled rider, and was now tame and receptive and responsive to the direction of the one who rode the horse. Well, there's a parallel here between that and us. That kind of horse was said to be meek. Well, similarly, in relation to God, those who are meek, those who are tamed, those who come under His influence are those who submit themselves to Him. They're not thrashing around and out of control. Rather, they submit their lives and their hearts and their wills to His direction and His leadership and His sovereignty. We become tame. We become meek under His sovereign influence. Uh, To switch the illustration, uh, David will speak of meekness as uh, a tame, or excuse me, a, a, a weaned infant in Psalm 131. There David says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Do you understand the image? If you have an infant or a, a baby, a child that's not weaned, and you put that baby on its mother's lap, it's going to thrash around and flail until it gets fed, right? But the weaned child, who's not looking for milk from mom, is not, you know, thrashing around. He's just sitting happy, playful on his mom's lap. He's composed. He's calm. He's quieted. A song we sing that I think well expresses this kind of meekness before God is the hymn, Whate'er My God Ordains Is Right. It reads, whatever my God ordains is right, His holy will abideth. I will be still whatever He does and follow where He guideth. He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to Him I leave it all. And so to Him I leave it all. I had a very dear friend who has been considered for a position that he sort of had his heart set on, uh, found out a couple of days ago that he is not getting the position, and he texted me, and he said, just, just heard the news, I'm being passed over for the position, whate'er my God ordains is right. That's a meek man. I take content what he has sent. I will submit to his will and not assert myself or question him. Blessed are the meek, And we see first, this meekness involves humble submission with respect to God. Now, point number two. Now, secondly, we've seen what meekness means in relationship to God. It requires humble submission with respect to God. Now, secondly, meekness requires a humble and lowly attitude with respect to ourselves. A humble and lowly attitude with respect to ourselves. Many of the commentators observe a kind of logical progression to these beatitudes. So to be poor in spirit, verse 3, is the necessary prerequisite to all that comes after. If you're not poor in spirit, you'll make no progress in these other beatitudes. They sort of build on each other as we go through. In other words, a person can only be truly meek if he is in the first instance poor in spirit and one who mourns 
over sin. So we consider these first two Beatitudes in the past couple of weeks. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It is to have a posture of penitence and brokenness before the Lord, to recognize that in me dwells no good thing, uh, that I am naked coming to the Lord for dress, I'm helpless coming to Him for grace. I come to Him in a posture of brokenness and contrition, asking Him to do for me the things that I cannot. I come to Him a spiritual beggar. Requires a certain view of ourselves. And then last week we considered what it means to mourn, and we noticed that At the heart of that idea is a kind of mourning over sin. We see things within ourselves that are a source of grief to us. And in that posture, we cry out to God, and we confess our sins to Him, and we invite His Spirit's influence to sanctify us. We mourn over sin and over the fallenness of this world. These things, these attitudes, these virtues must be true in us now if we are going to be truly meek. Meekness requires that we take a certain view of ourselves and a certain posture and attitude with respect to ourselves. And it's here, I'm just going to turn it over to Martin Lloyd-Jones, okay? I want to read a lengthy quote under this point that I think says it better than I possibly could. And by the way, if you're tracking with us in this series on the Sermon on the Mount, if you could only read one thing, I would recommend you pick up Martin Lloyd-Jones' two volumes, his exposition of the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, meekness essentially requires that we possess a true view of ourselves. A man can never be meek unless he has seen himself as a vile sinner. When I have that true view of myself in terms of poverty of spirit and mourning because of my sinfulness, I am led on to see that there must be also an absence of pride. The meek man is not proud of himself. He does not in any sense glory in himself. He feels that there is nothing in himself of which he can boast. It also means that he does not assert himself. You see, Lloyd-Jones then says, it is a negation of the popular psychology of the day, which says, assert yourself, express your personality. The man who is meek does not want to do so. The meek man, likewise, does not demand anything for himself. He does not take all his rights as claims. He does not take all his rights as claims. Because I have a right, I must assert it, right? He does not take all his rights as claims. He does not make demands for his position, his privileges, his possessions, and his status in life. But then let me go further. The man who is meek is not even sensitive about himself. He is not always watching himself and his own interests. He is not always on the defensive. We all know about this, do we not? Is it not one of the greatest curses in life as a result of the fall, this sensitivity about self? We spend our whole lives watching ourselves. But when a man becomes meek, he has finished with all that. He no longer worries about himself and what other people say. To be truly meek means we no longer protect ourselves because we see there is nothing worth defending. And so we are not on the defensive. All that is gone. The man who is truly meek never pities himself. He is never sorry for himself. He never talks to himself and says, you are having a hard time. How unkind these people are not to understand you. He never thinks, how wonderful I really am. And if only other people would give me a chance. Self-pity. What hours and years we waste in this. But the man who has become meek has finished with all that. To be meek, in other words, means that you have finished with yourself altogether and you come to see you have no rights or deserts at all. You come to realize that nobody can harm you. When a man truly sees himself, he knows nobody can say anything about him that is too bad. You need not worry about what men say or do. You know you deserve it all and more. Once again, therefore, I would define meekness like this. The man who is truly meek is the one who is amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. That, it seems to me, is its essential quality. You see what he's saying? Meekness with respect to ourselves requires that we don't carefully cultivate and manufacture a high view of self. We're not perpetually jealous to guard all of our rights and privileges. We're not desperate to defend ourselves and protect ourselves and stake our claim and assert our rights. No, 
Instead, we assume a humble and lowly posture. Our attitude toward ourselves is that we're not as awesome as we think we are, or as the culture will tell us that we are, or in some cases, some preachers will try to tell us that we are. And thus, it's not hard to regard others as more significant than ourselves. Friends, if we understand this, I think this will be like an interpretive key for like the rest of the Sermon on the Mount for us. Like, how is it that we as the Lord's people can be slapped on the one cheek and turned to them the other? How can we have our tunic taken from us and agree that we're going to give them our cloak as well? How do we not revile in return? How do we overcome evil with good? How are we supposed to count others more significant than ourselves? It all begins with assuming a posture of meekness, a proper view of self, a posture of humility. We're not entitled. We're not defensive. We're not assertive of our own way and our own rights. We are instead meek. No one owes me anything. All I am owed is eternity in hell. I remember listening to two pastors once talk uh, about a woman who was caught up in patterns of self-pity, needing to be vindicated, asserting herself and her way, and you know, this was not you know, the, like the clinical diagnosis on her condition, but one of the pastors just said to the other, you know, she would have a much easier time with all of this if she became more accustomed to seeing herself as a sinner deserving of hell. What were they saying? That when I recognize I'm not owed anything, I'm a sinner, always in need of grace, that I'm a nobody, when I take that posture of meekness and lowliness in my own sort of self-assessment, I become a little less passionate about asserting my own rights, A, a little less excited about staking my claim and getting my way and being vindicated in every situation. Just think of how practical this is. I mean, how would this impact our marriages if we all had this kind of assessment? How would it impact our relationships one with another? How would it impact our relationships in the work environment? You see, it's highly practical when we see ourselves according to meekness. John Bunyan puts it well when he says, he that is down need fear no fall. It's really a liberating idea. Yeah. There's nothing you could say about me where I can't tell you something worse about myself. He who is down need fear no fall. Okay, point number three. We've seen meekness, first of all, requires humble submission with respect to God. Secondly, meekness requires a humble and lowly attitude with respect to ourselves. Now, thirdly, Meekness requires gentleness, forbearance, and deference with respect to others. Deference, D-E-F-E-R-E-N-C-E. To be deferent is to say your needs above mine. I defer to you. No, no, no. You take the, the place in front of me in line. No, let's do what you want to do. Let's, let's, I'm interested in what you want. Your good above mine. Meekness requires gentleness, forbearance, and deference. When we talk about meekness, we can talk, as we have been, about taking a humble and lowly attitude with respect to ourselves, but this is meant to lead us toward a certain posture toward others. And Martin Lloyd-Jones says it well, meekness is essentially a true view of oneself expressing itself in our attitude and conduct with respect to others. It might start with a proper self-portrait, but it's meant to move us outward in terms of our attitude and conduct in our relationship before others. Most often when the New Testament speaks of meekness, it speaks about it with reference to how we relate to others. There are a few instances where it's to be a personal characteristic that I possess individually or that we could say is possessed individually by somebody, but it has most often to do with the relationships between people and how they relate to one another, at least so it is in Scripture. You need to look out for this, especially if you're reading from a newer translation like the ESV. Very often in your ESV, the word that is translated in English, gentleness, it's the Greek word propathia, that word is often translated gentleness, older translations would have translated as meekness. So the word actually appears maybe a lot more 
than you would think. If you're going through the New Testament looking for the word meekness, well, very often when you see the word gentleness, it's actually the word for meekness that is under that word, and that might give us a clue uh, as to something of the meaning of the word meekness. I'm going to read to you a few passages, and I want you to listen out for two things. One, the kinds of virtues and characteristics that seem to always hover around meekness in the Bible. And secondly, the use of meekness. So what's meekness doing in these passages? I'll just read a few of them to you. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and meekness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Number one, what are the kinds of virtues hovering around this idea of meekness. It is humility and gentleness and patience and a kind of bearing with one another, forbearance, bearing with one another in love. What is meekness doing in this passage? It's helping us to live in unity and in love with one another. That's what meekness does. That's the use of meekness. Colossians 3 verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Again, what are the virtues hovering around meekness? It's compassion, kindness, humility, patience, forbearance, love. And what is it that meekness is doing? It's helping us to live with one another in a loving community, in unity and forbearance and kindness toward one another. Twice Paul tells Timothy, as the minister in Ephesus, that he is to be meek. In 1 Timothy 6, verse 11, Paul says, You, O man of God, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, meekness. Men here who aspire to pastoral ministry or those who are in pastoral ministry, are you pursuing meekness? You may think that the traits most needed in the pastoral office are courage and you have to be able to make a stand and you have to be dogmatic and you have to be assertive and aggressive and things like that. In my experience, that's not the case. Pastoral ministry is very rarely um, taking sort of Martin Luther-esque stands before a bunch of opponents. You know, Here I stand, I can do no other. You may at times be called to do that. But at the heart of pastoral ministry is a woman whose life is utterly broken and she's coming to you, and she wants to know, is there something in this book? Has God said something that could help put the pieces of my life back together? And in that moment, what's needed? Meek pastors, gentle, loving, patient, meek pastors. Paul tells Timothy again, 2 Timothy 2, verse 24, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. Must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Yeah, but what about opponents? Correcting his opponents with meekness, with meekness, with gentleness, with kindness. Uh, please turn, if you would, to Philippians chapter 2. Last text I'll read out, Philippians chapter 2. This passage does not use the word for meekness, but though the word is not used, I think the idea is described better here than in any other place in the New Testament epistles. I don't want to steal Rex's thunder. He's going to start preaching this passage next week, but I want you to have this as kind of an appetizer as we await that exposition. This passage is going to talk to us about meekness. And it's going to point us to the great example of meekness in the Lord Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, just start reading in verse 3. This is true of the meek man or woman. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. That's the imperative. That's the requirement. That's the responsibility enjoined on us. We're to count others more significant than ourselves. Not to live and walk in selfish ambition. Oh, to be free of selfish ambition and conceit. 
But then we have the model given to us. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If we want to be meek men and women and understand the essence of meekness, we should all live in this passage and these other passages I've mentioned. What do we learn about meekness from these passages? The meek man or woman is gentle toward others, forbearing, patient, deferential. No, you above me, your needs more significant than my own, selfless, forgiving, loving. And this meekness then, as I hope you can see, is meant to be immensely practical. It's meekness that enables you to serve others and live a life of self-sacrifice. It's meekness that keeps you from manipulating people to get your own way. It keeps you from always having to get in the last word with your wife. It keeps you from nagging your husband to secure some kind of outcome for yourself. It keeps you from having to constantly settle scores. It delivers you from the need to vindicate yourself. It guards you against taking vengeance. It keeps you from retaliating against others who criticize you or slander you. It enables you to overcome evil with good. It protects you from the cancer of unforgiveness. It frees you from looking always to your own interests and empowers you to live a life of service to others. It shatters the tyranny of self-worship and self-pity and self-will and enables you to look upon others with genuine love and regard. Isn't meekness a most wonderful virtue? Oh, that it would forever mark the godly and mark us in all our relationships, our families, our work settings, our church gatherings. Well, what have we seen about meekness? Three points. Number one, meekness requires humble submission with respect to God. Secondly, meekness requires a humble and lowly attitude with respect to ourselves. Thirdly, meekness requires gentleness, forbearance, and deference with respect to others. Two questions. I want to ask as we move toward a close. What is promised in this passage to those who are meek? Blessed are the meek for what? For they shall inherit the earth. Uh, This is likely a quote from Psalm 37, verse 11. That's a great psalm about meekness. Read Psalm 37, maybe in your quiet time this week. But there in verse 11 we read, but the meek shall inherit the land. The meek shall inherit the land. Now, we know this, hopefully, this side of the cross, that the idea of land that the Israelites thought of, the idea of inheriting physical geographical land, that promise has been gloriously enlarged to encompass the entire earth. To Christians, to God's new covenant people, we are granted to reign with the Lord Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. We will inherit the entire earth forever, not a small piece of land in the Middle East somewhere. Even Abraham himself, we read in Hebrews 11, he was looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. He thought he hadn't inherited the promises yet. He knew something greater and grander was to come. Well, here it is. The meek will inherit the earth. Now, friends, just pause and recognize how opposed this is to the way our world conditions us to believe, that it's actually the meek who are going to end up on top in the end. You would think the meek people are the ones who get run over. Meekness, as I've described it this morning, would make you a doormat. Who wants to be meek? That's the fast train to nowhere. That'll get you on the bottom. Right? We joked about this a couple of weeks ago. No one's going to put meekness on their application for a job, right? Well, I'm very meek. No one wants that. That's going to get you anywhere with the company or anywhere in the world. The meek are not those who will be thought of as powerful in any worldly sense. They won't be honored with recognition and applause. Being meek will make it much harder to climb the ladder. 
and you might as well say goodbye to cultural and political power, the ones who succeed in life are the tough, the dogged, the formidable, the assertive, the aggressive, the overbearing, the strident, the one who is looking out for himself, the one who knows how to subdue and dominate others, the one who is ready to constantly contend and vie for position and power and prestige. These are the ones, right, who will be successful and who will end up on top. But friends, Jesus says, don't be deceived. The proud may have their petty kingdoms for a moment, but it is the meek who will rule the world. It's the meek who will inherit the earth. As John Stott puts it, the condition on which we enter our spiritual inheritance in Christ is not might, but meekness. But of course, the world will not condition you to think this way. You must adopt a counter-cultural mindset. Indeed, you have to learn to adopt a kingdom mindset if you're going to be truly meek. And friends, I just want to sound a note of caution here, because the pressure to eschew meekness and adopt a worldly attitude toward position and power and my place in the world comes to us not only from the secular world, but even from some quarters of the church world. There are right now many well-known, prominent, and public so-called Christian leaders who are highly visible and highly lauded, who I don't think model well the virtue of meekness. They are loud and shrill and braggadocious and abrasive and self-asserting and derisive toward their opponents, and they are cutting and biting in their remarks, vituperative in the way they engage with others. They do no credit to the Beatitudes. And no credit to genuine meekness of spirit. And what's worse is they will sometimes argue that the kind of thing I'm commending in this sermon, which is nothing other than what Jesus commended to us in the Sermon on the Mount and modeled for us in His blessed life and example, is only a recipe for getting walked all over by pagans and losing the culture war, and we can't allow that to happen. If you follow such leaders and you adopt that kind of attitude, you may win the internet, but you will not inherit the earth. Uh, You may push past some of your opponents. You may get a few years of position and place and power that you're so eagerly vying for, but you will not be like your Lord. You may, with cutting sarcasm and impressive rhetoric and proud derision, conquer your opponents and subdue those who get in your way, but you won't be a citizen of the kingdom. Friends, in all candor, I'm concerned that a lot of Christians are starting to give up on meekness. They're starting to give up on the Beatitudes. For a lot of Christian people, the Beatitudes don't get them where they want to go and don't give them what they wish. And so, who's, who's going to be poor in spirit? Who wants to be meek? Who wants to be the peacemaker? If I'm to get anywhere in this world, I must assert myself. Give up my rights? No, I must stake my claim. And people become dissatisfied with the way of Jesus, the way that He's mapped out for us, because from the world's standpoint, it doesn't seem to be getting us where we want to go and securing for me the things that I want to secure. Friends, I just urge you, don't give up on this teaching from the Lord Jesus. Look what is yours if you are truly meek. It's the meek who will inherit the earth. It's the meek who are blessed, and we talked about what that word blessed means. It's the meek who are approved by God, who are singled out by Him for unique favor and approval. They have His smile He wants those who are His children, those who are His disciples, those who are the citizens of His kingdom, a kingdom that is not of this world. He wants them to live and walk in meekness of spirit. In a word, He wants them to be like Himself, the Lord who described Himself as gentle and lowly in heart, meek and lowly in heart. We must remember the primary image the Bible uses to describe us is that of sheep. 
not wolves. Wolves, aggressive, assertive, violent. You, you might think of yourself as a sheep and think, I'm not passive, humble, what good's a sheep, right? Well, as I recall, it's a lamb who sits on the throne. And he promises to share his rule with his sheep. A final question before we close. How do we become meek? I hope, as I've talked about what meekness is from the Bible, it's appeared attractive to you. It's appeared winsome and handsome and beautiful and right and good. You say, I want to be more meek. How do we become meek? Very quickly, three things. Number one, we recognize only the Spirit of God can produce meekness in us, and so we ask the Spirit to enlarge this grace within us. Only the Spirit of God can produce meekness in me, and so we ask the Spirit to enlarge this grace within us. You know, Galatians 5.22 lists meekness as one of the fruits of the Spirit. All of you are singing the song in your head right now, and you're like, hold on, I don't think that's right. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Remember what I told you. You read the old translations, King James Version, the ASV, that word gentleness is meekness. That's probably in most cases a better translation, but we don't use that word anymore, so they translate it gentleness. But meekness is a fruit of the Spirit, which means, brother, sister, what is the Spirit trying to produce in you right now? Why is He given to you? What's, what's the fruit He wants you to bear? It's the fruit of meekness. We aren't naturally meek. I'm not born meek. I got three little kids at home. I can assure you, meekness is not endemic to their nature. If they're to be meek, if you're to be meek, the Spirit of God will have to produce this in you. And so ask God to send His Spirit upon you, to fill you with His Spirit, to enlarge the fruit of meekness within you, and then subject yourself to His influences like a horse to a rider. That sounds really fancy. How do I subject myself to the Spirit's influence? Well, it's not by standing out in a field with your arms spread wide or something like that. It's more like having a quiet time every day, coming before His Word. The Spirit is going to use His Word to change us. It's by coming into the gathering Worshiping God and submitting ourselves to the means of grace. This is how the Spirit of God works in our lives. It's not through incantations or mystical experiences. It's through the ordinary means of grace. It's through these things He will change us and shape us and enlarge the fruit of the Spirit within us. Second, how do we become meek? We look to our Savior and we study Him. We look to our Savior and we study Him. And we observe His example and we look upon His heart and we learn from Him. What was Jesus like? What is Jesus like? He says, come to me for I'm meek and lowly in heart. Which means the more you understand who the person of Jesus is, the more you're going to see his meekness. And the more you walk with him and follow him, the more you'll become like him. Not only is that plainly taught in the scriptures, it's just sort of obvious. I read a book a couple of years ago called Atomic Habits. Some of you have read that book. I don't think the writer, I don't know that the writer was a Christian, but one of the simple things he observes is if you want to grow in a certain area or see a certain character trait or virtue enlarged in your own life, you need to stop hanging around with people who denigrate that virtue and hang around people who are excelling in that virtue. You know, so, so you want to be a disciplined runner? Well, start hanging out with runners. You know, you want to be um, you know, more patient? Well, don't be around people who constantly are encouraging you that you can be impatient, be around people who are patient and model it well. Well, it's not very different with the Lord Jesus. As you know Him and walk with Him and commune with Him, more and more you experience Him as a meek and lowly Savior. And you start to become like Him. As you observe His example and experience His love and His grace in your life, look to Jesus to become more meek. And then thirdly and finally, and maybe most importantly, we become meek by meditating more on the gospel itself. We meditate more on the gospel itself. Only the gospel can show us who we really are, it can show us who God really is, and what Christ really has done to save us. 
Only the gospel can set us free from the tyranny of self, set us free to humbly submit to God and free to love and serve others and to regard others as more significant than ourselves. Only the gospel of a meek Savior who humbled Himself to the point of death on the cross for the sake of sinners like you and me can change us and make us into those who are truly meek. As I embrace and believe the gospel more and more, it has a way of shaping us into meek men and women. Brothers and sisters, don't give up on meekness. Christ our Savior is the purest embodiment of meekness. And isn't he a lovely Savior? Don't you want to emulate him and be more like him? Let us follow our Lord in this. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, by your Spirit's help, for your people's good, for your own glory. Please make us more and more like your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we're impressed by these Beatitudes, by this Sermon on the Mount, because not only in it we see this beautiful picture of what life in your kingdom is meant to be like, but it shows us something of the heart of our Savior Himself. We see that your law brings us to the perfect lawgiver. We want to be like Him. We want to be students and disciples in His class. We want Him to be our teacher. Help us more and more to follow our Savior in this. Make us into meek men and women. We pray that meekness would renew our lives, that it would strengthen the unity and joy of this fellowship of believers at Emmanuel Church, that it would renew and restore our marriages, that it would reconcile people who have been alienated from one another. Lord, we do pray that meekness would have its way with us, that it would do its work among us. We pray for, for each one here today. Help us to consider how growth in meekness would not only honor our Savior, but bring so much good in our lives and in our relationships. May we pursue it. May we hunger after it. Lord, we pray by the help of your Son, the Lord Jesus, that Savior who is meek and lowly in heart. We pray we would all find rest and help in Him, that we would experience Him in all His meekness and all His gentleness and all of His readiness to receive sinners, to save them and to sanctify them. And may we in turn become more and more like Him. We pray together in Jesus' name, amen.